Welcome to the Digitally Native Podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, Today is actually my birthday. Um, You know, I tried to look online if there was um, uncopyrighted birthday music that I could play, and then I started seeing all kinds of things about, you know, songs and how like they've been copyrighted to infinity. So I just decided not to even go that route. But then I was thinking very um, strongly actually about having a little clip to that song happy birthday to you but then I just decided not to get into a copyright war Um, so yes it has been my birthday today and it has been a lovely day Um, it's been simple but very very fulfilling I think sometimes the simplest things are the most fulfilling spending time with people who make time to be present and available and who care about you and who pamper you and spoil you. So I've had a really great day. I've been spoiled rotten. Um, and so I thought to myself, should I really try and uh, record a podcast today? Do I have the energy for it? I thought to do this in the morning and then I couldn't do it in the morning. And then, um, then I thought, let me try and do it in the evening before um, we get into the new week. So I had wanted to go into a deep dive around AI, but then, oh, my brain, my brain, I have birthday brains. So <laughs> um, I decided to scale it back a little bit and focus on something a little less complicated. Um, I looked at my um, schedule of topics and one of the less complicated topics that I could find was around uh, tech hubs on the continent. I mean, it's not less complicated per se. It's just something I can speak from 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 more experiential knowledge. So it's not going to um, be as technical, obviously. Um, But yeah, I just decided to think a little bit through where we are with tech hubs on the continent, on the African continent, that is. Um, And uh, what are some of the observations that I have made about tech hubs um, and um, their growth or lack thereof? And so, you know, we know about tech hubs. We know that um, I think around 10 or so years ago, um, the idea of co-working spaces and tech hubs um, really became something very popular. Um, And we saw models of this working quite well in certain um, areas of the world. Um, Obviously, the template is Silicon Valley, uh, which is um, the west coast of the United States of America. However, you, you saw and heard about other places that somehow managed to have a um, very robust tech ecosystem. So I think Berlin um, in uh, in Germany was one of those places. Bangalore in India is another one of those places. And so you start to, you know, just have these kinds of ideas around why or how 
those spaces uh, cultivate a robust tech culture. Um, and then obviously there's this kind of, um, uh, I wanted to say mimicking, but that's not the word. Um, uh, there's a word for this. Uh, kind of trying to reproduce um, uh, copy or sample how tech hubs work in a certain place and trying to make them work in other places. And obviously there's varying um, results with that. Some places are able to maintain um, a tech hub or tech culture or um, just a, a, a tech, uh, yeah, I'd say a tech culture and some places are not. And so it's always really interesting because I'm a sociologist and I want to kind of go into why things work um, and from a cultural and social perspective. But I think it's always important to start from something that we can kind of call the template. Um, and um, that is obviously Silicon Valley, like I've already said. Um, and it's always important, I think, to unpack some of the things that were happening in, in Silicon Valley, in the West Coast of the United States of America, that made Silicon Valley something that became so uh, vibrant and so successful. So, you know, we associate Silicon Valley with the headquarters of most tech and innovation companies, your Apple, your Google, your Meta, your Microsoft, and all these big companies. Um, and, you know, when you look a little bit deeper into why that might be or why that is, there's a, a tradition of a strong um, science and engineering culture, research um, in that area. There's also universities that support that kind of um, culture. You have universities like Stanford, Stanford, Stanford. They call it Stanford in America. I'm, I'm saying Stanford. Uh, yeah, Stanford. And um, Berkeley and other universities that are, you know, quite well, quite well known and established. Um, and then also, you know, there's access to capital, venture capital, um, you know, just kind of, I guess, an ecosystem of a venture capitalist who want to invest in technology and technology ideas. Um, and then also government support. Um, so, you know, Silicon Valley has operated and I mean, there's there's been a lot of conversation lately around whether we're seeing the implosion of Silicon Valley at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening in the tech space. We also know that lots of tech companies are letting off quite a lot of um, staff and employees. Um, but, you know, still, um, one of the things uh that has made Silicon Valley so vibrant is that it sits at this nexus of these different spaces. You have academia, so the universities that are producing a lot of these um, science and technology um, research uh, hubs and, you know, cultivating the culture of engineering and science and technology. And then you also have the private sector, you have um, these venture capitalists who are um, very interested in supporting uh, innovation. And then you have government, which is also supporting innovation. So obviously, there's something happening in the ecosystem that is making it 
far more vibrant than anywhere else. Um, and I think the other thing that uh, has come up uh, previously in conversations about why that is particularly a space that is, you know, the sweet spot is um, location uh, and weather. So the West Coast um, of the United States has far less uh, cold weather than you would have on the East Coast. Um, and I think also somewhere in the Midwest, some parts. Um, and so that makes it a very viable place for people to actually want to settle. Um, you know, I guess creatives and people who are a little more laid back and just want to play around with ideas more. So, you know, all these things just kind of work together in this way that makes a place the ideal place for certain things. And I think that is one thing that we start to realize when you look at why certain places um, may not be conducive to the same. So um, I think I'll take this back a few years, actually, because I think I started asking myself questions about tech hubs about 10 or so years ago. And that was around the time, like I said, tech hubs were this big thing. And um, there was a lot of innovation camps. Um, people were trying to set up um, kind of models of tech hubs across different parts of the continent. Um, and one of those places being Zimbabwe. And me being Zimbabwean, I was very curious and a little bit, I'm sorry, I tend to be cynical about things because <laughs> um, I, I just, you know, if, if something doesn't make sense to me, I'm not the person that's just going to go along with it. And I think um, as tech hubs were becoming quite popular and um, I, I saw um, a kind of model that was emerging in Zimbabwe for, it, for tech hubs, I wasn't quite convinced by it. Um, and I didn't quite know why. At that point, I felt very much like we were just trying to copy something that worked in another part of the world without contextualizing it. So I think, you know, it was this vibe of <clears throat> young people in co-creative co spaces and um, having lots of coffee and working on their laptops and pounding away and coming up with pitches and pitching things and winning pitch nights and getting, you know, some capital to start something up. But then, you know, obviously in the absence of a, a range of factors, such as I've already alluded to with Silicon Valley, um, that's not sustainable. So you can have a great idea, but then the idea needs um, sustained funding. It needs a market. It needs all kinds of things. Um, it needs to actually be viable. And I think in certain societies where tech is something that people do use, um, but then they use it very differently, it's very difficult to um, introduce, you know, things like new applications or things that are going to take people out of a comfort zone. So, you know, you might have an ecosystem where people would use more things like WhatsApp, Facebook, um, and those kinds of social media um, applications. And then if one comes in with a, an application that is for something different, um, that's not instantly recognizable. The uptake can be very challenging. And I think that's across the board. I think we tend to prefer things that have scaled or things that we know have lots of numbers behind them. 
And so it was always a little bit of a, an uphill battle for um, people with innovation who wanted to create something that was, you know, localized. Because I think as well, it's important to note that uh, a country like Zimbabwe has a very small population. It's under 20 million. Um, and the class divide is quite high. So um, having access to technology is not universal. And so you're speaking to a very niche market of people who are already probably adopters of other technological innovations and might have a certain level of uh, hesitance about something that was local because, you know, a lot of local um, products, tech products, do not sustain because they don't get the capital that they need to sustain. So to, to get someone to come from uh, one application to another one can be very challenging. I think, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking um, in terms of, for instance, you know, Uber is not a thing in Zimbabwe. Um, there are different forms of applications that um, exist that people can use that are similar to your Uber um, and other ride-sharing apps, taxi apps. Uh, but then I would say that Again, being from a very communal perspective, I think Zimbabwe is a quite communal um, society. Um, uptake of, I think, let me take a step back from that, not uptake so much as um, how one gets access to networks can be very different. Um, so while a taxi app may exist, it's more likely that before I use one, I would ask someone if they knew a taxi driver that they trusted that I could use. Um, and Or someone would refer me to someone else who has a good cabbie, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that becomes something that's a little bit more comfortable for people versus um, this kind of cold calling on an app. Because if you're from a very communal perspective, those kinds of things can be very confronting. And so I think all these things are kind of working um, together to, to make some of these things challenging. But then also, you know, if you're in a context where there isn't government support, there isn't venture capital, um, and there isn't a culture, you know, the Stanford culture of science and technology in that certain way where it's about innovation as well. It's not just about producing people who can, um, I guess, use science and technology versus people who can appropriate science and technology to make something different, then it's, it's very challenging to have sustainable tech projects. So I, you know, I thought at that time, I thought, hmm, this is, you know, I, I don't know, something is not landing for me, something is not making sense to me. And I think as well, there was a lot of um, donor funding towards tech hubs, which was great because it gave um, these innovators access to some capital. But then I think that that's a whole different funding model for innovation, because I guess at the core, there has to be an entrepreneurial spirit that keeps you pushing and, you know, the risk 
the tolerance for risk is a really important part of um, entrepreneurial pact- practices and you know tech startups etc cetera, etc cetera. and so when you start from a place of having donor funding it's um, it's already kind of disrupting the tolerance for risk it's it's disrupting your capacity to shift and you know absorb risk and move quickly and change and adapt and then do x and then do y and then do z and then come back to a and b and c um, and so i think those things are really uh, can be seen as uh not very important but they they're very critical i think where the money comes from um and what the expectations from the money are are very important things to think about and so at the same time as I'm having this conversation with myself at that time, I get this opportunity to go to Kenya. And um, it was not for this. It was not in any way related to tech hubs. However, I did have a little bit of spare time to myself. And I really wanted to understand what it was that Kenya was doing that um, Zimbabwe wasn't doing. And... Um, I remember going to iHub, which is this great success story for tech hubs um, on the African continent. It's um, one of the most well-known local, global um, African tech hubs. And it started out um, of Ushahidi, which was a project to map uh, violence during the 2007 Kenyan elections. So um, they used technology to create maps um, around violence and um, abuse of human rights during this very highly contested election. And then out of that came, you know, a group of people who decided to start a tech hub so that um, they could continue the work of Ushahidi, but then also invite other uh, tech innovators to start to um, work a little bit more collaboratively around their tech innovations and have access to venture capital and all kinds of support. And, you know, I think going to the iHub and kind of seeing it for myself, seeing um, how it operated uh, was a very eye-opening experience for me because it, it made me very aware of why I felt the way I felt about tech hubs not working um, in, in Zimbabwe. Um, they just, you know, I think there's something to say for the energy of spaces and the energy of creativity and innovation. Um, I think as well, it's, it's somewhat, um, it's a, I do not, I do not know how to say this in a way that is not unfortunate. However, I think that, um, Technology tends to be, or innovation tends to be a luxury. Um, not, not to say that I think entrepreneurs have a backup plan or that they have access to resources. I mean, they're highly, it's highly risk, uh, it's highly risky to be an entrepreneur in any context. However, I think that um, to have ideas and to have the opportunity to explore ideas is still a privilege, um, especially in contexts where um, a society can be going through great socioeconomic um, upheaval. And so you do see that some of the best innovators tend to come from, I guess, the middle class. Um, 
And um, that's because there is some sort of, uh, you need starting capital to just get an idea going. I'll give an example of myself. I uh, used to run um, a platform called Her Zimbabwe, which was a digital storytelling project for young Zimbabwean women. And at the time that I started it, I had just finished my master's degree and I'd saved money. I'd saved enough money that I could forecast that I could live on for a, you know, a stretch of time to explore this idea. Now, that's already a privilege. How many people can do that? Um, if you're in survival mode, you definitely are not going to be able to do that. You're going to go for the low-hanging fruit of survival. You're going to look for something that can make you enough money to get to tomorrow and the next day and the next day. To think about this grand project of doing something um, that may not yield results for some time is absolutely a privilege, absolutely a luxury for a lot of people. And so I think even when I kind of went through the space of the tech hub, um, it's not to say it was, you know, a blanket middle class environment, but then you did get that sense. It was a very, um, I guess, upmarket um, energy and space. And obviously it had... You know, it had these different people doing different things, but then, yeah, it 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 just was a very different place to I think the hubs that I'd seen um in Zimbabwe where you know you you have people, young people particularly, who are just trying to find something to do so that they can make ends meet, and that's not always um going to yield the best entrepreneurial spirit, um, and I think you know it's 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 just something that one has to acknowledge um, about some of these these um, spaces. Um, and so there was that. But I think, you know, there's also something to be said for um, just access to basic uh, technological needs. So, for instance, I think um, Kenya uh, has, you know, a robust telecoms sector, I think the cost of um, data, internet costs, etc., are markedly lower than they would be in a country like Zimbabwe. Um, and also there's more competition among the telecoms companies, um, Airtel, Safaricom, etc. Whereas I think um, Zimbabwe largely operates as a uh, from a single service provider, which is Econet, which is... Um, the biggest telecoms company. There are there are smaller ones, but then one would tend towards Econet because it has diversified its portfolio so much that it's more convenient to to be with Econet than any other telecoms company. And this is the same, I guess, we can say for I mean the diversity of um, telecoms companies is the same as we can say for countries like Nigeria, where there's also like a very big um, tech hub environment. Um, there's enough different uh, tech spaces or tech companies doing something that creates competition. Um, and so that's that's also part of the, the mix. And I mean, across the continent, tech hubs have grown, you know, from 117 hubs in 2015 to 618 in 2019. Uh, this is uh, from that statistic is from an article on Quartz. 
And, um, you know, so this is something we see. Um, there's particularly growth in countries like Kenya, South Africa, and Nigeria with a focus on their capital cities, Nairobi, Johannesburg, and Lagos. Those are the top cities for African tech. And they're also able to attract um, global companies, including those ones from Silicon Valley. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's something to be said about, again, just as something is happening in Silicon Valley, there's something that happens in certain cities. There's numbers. I think Nigeria has particularly high numbers of people. We talk about this quite a lot in this podcast. There's over 200 million people in Nigeria. And so that's a ready market. Um, Kenya also has a fairly high population. South Africa is the same. And so those numbers... Um, make it more viable to have these tech companies. Um, and um, there's greater chance for innovation, scaling, I mean, uptake of innovation and scaling of it. Uh, so those things are quite important to also take into appreciation. And um, I think the problem is when we lump Africa into this one thing and we say this is how to do innovation or tech innovation in Africa, we forget all the nuances of each space, and they're very different. Um, and some things work in some places in the same way they do not work in some other places in the United States or in any part of the world where there might be a city that has a specific sweet spot for innovation or culture or whatever it is, and it you know just go to another city and it's a completely different um, landscape. So I think all those things are always important to take into consideration. And I think the other thing to really think about is, um, and I saw this somewhere recently, it was a question, um, I, I saw it as a meme or something, and it said, are you an entrepreneur or are you self-employed? And I think a lot of people think that they are entrepreneurs when they're self-employed. And those are two very different things because again, entrepreneurship, real entrepreneurship, entails a lot of risk-taking, moving quick, um, being able to adapt, versatility, flexibility, adaptability, all those things, um, and, you know, just having an ear for where things are going and being able to shift in those areas. And I don't think all cultures, all societies are geared towards creating uh members of society who are who are that way inclined and I think that goes back to an education system and I keep talking about Zimbabwe because that's the country I know so I'm not going to try and talk about other countries um, in comparison to um, these three countries these African countries Kenya Nigeria and South Africa that I've already mentioned so I will keep pushing what I know rather than you know speaking to other contexts now I would say quite strongly that um, Zimbabwean education system, the Zimbabwean education system does not prepare people to be innovators. I think it largely prepares people to be highly uh, functional, highly um, successful workers. And that's, that's a very important thing to note because being highly educated doesn't mean that you are um, highly adaptable. It means that you are probably going to take on a trade and go in 
grow into that trade and be very successful in it. It doesn't mean that you are, it probably usually doesn't mean that you're likely to go and do something that's of high risk that can have um, a lot of pushback or ramifications for yourself. And I think Zimbabweans tend to not want to rock the boat. Zimbabwe is an extremely polite and extremely conservative society where everyone is just trying to have a certain level of life and keep it moving. Well, not everyone, most people are trying to do that. And so this kind of disruptive way of thinking puts you in a place where you might be, you know, singled out in a way that, you know, most people don't want to be, they do not want to stand out, they just want to fit in, they want to blend in. And um, that is not entirely a culture that is open to innovation. In fact, I feel from my own personal experiences before that uh, being an innovator has actually, it tends to be something that people try to talk you out of. It's like, why would you want to do that? Whereas you can just do what everyone else is doing. And so those are really important things to think about when we think about not just tech hubs, but any kind of innovation um, that we would like to believe is transferable from one culture to another. I don't think it's that simple. There's so many factors that we've already mentioned, but then I think education is a very big one. Socialization, not just education as well. What does the family unit particularly value as career and growth and progress? Um, which is, I think, in many of these conservative societies, it's, it's a trade, it's a profession, and a certain kind of trade and profession. Uh, you know, creative trade uh, or a creative profession is, you know, looked upon very lowly as, you know, but you're not going to make money. You're just going to be a starving artist or whatever it is, the, the, the trope of the creative arts. And so all those things kind of come together and make it quite challenging for um, people in contexts that are not from that conducive space to actually succeed. And so, yeah, that's really just what I came up with today. Um, yeah, I have done the best I can with the very minimal energy that I still have today. Um, and I hope it makes sense and I hope it has got you thinking a little bit. Um, and um, I look forward to seeing you, not seeing you, uh, being with you next week and um, I wish you a good week and a good holiday to come. I will do my best to to be with you over the holiday with a new podcast episode but then I wanted to also follow up because I've been saying in the last few episodes about you being able to get in touch if there's any ideas or topics that you would like me to discuss on this podcast uh, and so you can uh, contact us on my Twitter account, which is at Native Podcast, um, or else you can send an email where I will do my best to respond to your requests. You can send that to info at digitallynativepodcast.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. I'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast. And until then, take good care of yourself and we will meet again soon. Thank you.